I'm Holiday. I'm Taraday. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Ah. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. <laughs> Sicily, 1912. Hello, everybody, and welcome to... Well, welcome to what I call one of my favorite shows to do, Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0. I am, as always, the great white snark, Scotty J., and seated across from me is the lovely and twisted Monica. Hi! <laughs> um, we got a good one for you today, folks, but um, I know last time we recorded, we we kind of talked a little bit about Philadelphia's Boy in the Box, and uh, they, they gave him a name. Yeah. Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Yeah, I mean, I'm eventually going to look into this because it, it just seem, seems interesting that, well, I mean, for a crime, you know, this, this poor kid was found in a box and no parents should have to go through that. Well, the parents are probably, it's, they haven't really given any actual information of like how it happened though so it's still... so we still don't know how he died well i mean they have they knew how he died more i should have put it that way because it's more they all know exactly who did it okay so we know how he died we just don't know who yeah. did it well it was like some stupid reporter um yes he was like so it was a homicide are you like are you freaking kidding me Right. I'm like, yeah, that was established like back when he was found. Duh. So Right. So they're still trying or or apparently his I guess siblings or like half siblings. They're being as cooperative as they really should be. So not quite there's basically that's all the real information there is right now for no and it really wasn't a prominent family it was just oh it's just had a business yeah okay like, like lots of families have businesses right so how is that because they gave the name I'm like i have literally never heard that name before and i grew up in the area and you know. <laughs> right it, it's like you know yeah. people come come up to me and they're like well you're from saint Anne, aren't you i'm like well yeah unfortunately like, do you know such and such? I'm like, well, they sound familiar. Familiar. I mean, I'm yeah, not. I just literally didn't even. And I, other people I've like talked to, that was also, um, they were just like saying, like they had never heard of. Right. I mean, well, so I'm I'm gonna try looking up. There was a case. Well. I should have told you off camera. Now I remembered what. Or now I remembered what I wanted to say, but. It was a case Phil and I covered um the Leonard Small kidnapping. He, he he's a prominent family you know, his family was prominent here in Kankakee. Um in like the literal term prominent, not just they owned a business and somebody decided Well, one of I think it was his, his I think it was his grandfather or his great grandfather was um 
governor of the state. Oh, well, yeah, so that counts. Right. Not like they literally just had a have family has a business. And, and then then so. there's like um, the family has a park here named after them in Kansas. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that counts. Yeah, that's right. The but prom- then, you know, you get something like, um, you know, the Tara Sue Hoffman case. That if, like, if the guy who murdered her, if he would have stayed, well, if he would have stayed in prison, if they would, would not have released him, then Christopher Myers would still be alive and her story would just be a local one. Yeah. But because, you know, this guy got released... He hadn't even been released that long before he killed again. Yeah, so it's like, and what did you expect to happen? Yeah, I hate those. Right. So, and the thing is, is at the time, um, well, Illinois had gotten rid of the death penalty, or I think we might have brought it back, or I, I got to look more into it, and I can't remember because we that was our first case we ever did. <laughs> yeah, but, I don't uh, think you, we didn't, or like we didn't go to Ivy Hill. No, so I can because I can remember we'd seen, you know, you know, Joseph's grave together, and I, or it must have been another trip out there. But I uh, did so. Sorry for the interruption, but right, uh, I know uh, that the Tara Sue Hoffman's killer and uh, Christopher Myers' killer. I want to say he was on, you know, he had gotten a death penalty, but then, um, trying, Governor Ryan, before he left office, he commuted a lot of sentences to life imprisonment, and his was one they got commuted to life. And then, it's like, because I'm, I'm pretty sure there were some people who was going to line up to flip that or flip that switch, you know? Yeah, well, that's like, I, I think we're too, like, oh, life, but. If you get the death penalty, if you, um, or execute, you still get what the like one hour, like of sunlight, or so. Right. That's you another reason. Right. If but if you get life, it's basically what general population, depending on the state, I guess, and everything. Uh, yeah, I'm taking a look just to see. Um, just real quickly. Capital punishment has been repealed in Illinois since 2011. That's what I'm saying. If they just would keep the death penalty, though, and even they don't execute people, it's still well, it's my, still worse than life. Right. Illinois was using hanging up until 1928. Uh, the last person executed by this method was the public execution of Charles Berger the same year. After being struck down by Furman versus George on 72, the death penalty was reinstated in July on July 1st, 1974, avoided by the Supreme Court of Illinois in 75. And on July, what is it with my state issuing things on July 1st? Because they reinstated it on July 1st, 1977. With the fiscal year and all that, I guess, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, in 83, we, we used lethal injection. Uh, 94, the state executed serial killer John Wayne Gacy by lethal injection. We know that. On January 11th, 2003, Republic, 
Republican Governor George Ryan blanket commuted the sentence of all 167 inmates condemned to death and pardoned four of them. Democratic Governor Pat Quinn signed legislation on March 9, 2011 to abolish the death penalty. So, yeah, we've been... Um, Republican Governor Bruce Rauner in 2018 called for the reintroduction of the death penalty. Uh, this was opposed by state lawmakers, and Rauner was subsequently defeated by Democrat J.B. Pritzker, who's got the wonderful nickname in the state of Fred Flintstone. Because he, he kind of looks like Fred Flintstone. That's funny. I'll send you a picture in case you've never, in, in case you've never seen him. But it's you know, I have often seen him give press conferences, especially during the, the COVID uh-huh. pandemic. Yeah, never got that picture of the flight attendants from D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. I but just, that, I just saw a, um, just saw on a Discovery Plus there was um, a documentary on him that I wanted to watch, but I watched one on um, the in the January sixth insurgency. Yeah, but yeah, you had strep. I had a, a my cold, right. an ear infection, which it's been I can't even remember the last time I had an ear infection. Because I yeah ended up first time at the emergency room going by myself. So that was fun. Well, you know now we're um hopefully we're <laughs> well winter's just beginning, so I'm I'm pretty sure we're uh, we're gonna be. And James is fine. My mom's my mom got sick. Like she James, got James, the only the only and one James in the house. Literally the only one, yeah. And he was we were basketball practice, and where my mom was saying because he was standing there like you know just chewing on his nails, and I'm like, can't say, but like he's literally the only one in the house that hasn't been sick. So I'm like maybe there's something to it. All right. <laughs> All right, folks, we got a good one for you today. This is one that I actually wanted to do uh, when I came out in the summer. Since you're not far from, well, I mean, I don't know how far you actually are from that. Farther the, than, the, it's closer to New York City, too. Right. Um, we're going to talk about the Charles Lindbergh ki- kidnapping, which, um, yeah, I mean, parts of it are still controversial today. Um we we still don't think that everybody who, well, we'll get more into it, but this was definitely not a one-man job. No. Now, for those of you who don't know, Charles Lindbergh was a famous aviator. He He flew from New York to Paris alone. Some people still dispute that one. World famous. World famous aviator. Um, he... He mar- he got married, and him and his wife had had a son, Charles Jr. Of course, yeah. I mean, like basically, if you had no other choice for a name, I guess, right? Well, sometimes yeah. it's just like, yeah, you're going to have to be a junior, right? And uh, JFK Jr. and all of them. Yep. Sorry. Well, <laughs> take a look at um, Robert Todd Lincoln. Okay, mm-hmm. he had a son named Abraham Lincoln the second. Yeah, but. Robert Todd was interesting. They they called it they they nicknamed the kid Jack and he's like, no, you gotta earn your name. <laughs> it's like, but you gave it to me. 
He's like, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Here's the first Abraham Lincoln, my father, uh-huh. your grandfather. Uh-huh. You surpass him, you can earn the name. Well, it's kind of like with James of sorts. Kind of like, yeah, you know, named after some. Unfortunately, cool Jack, people say so you have to. Yeah, right. He's earning it, kind of, but yeah. But still, I mean, he, yeah, he was named after a couple cool people. So, oh yeah, uh, hopefully, but, uh, rub off. But um, unfortunately, Jack uh, Jack Lincoln didn't get to earn his name because he uh, died of blood poisoning when he was a teen. Stay away from Robert Lincoln. <laughs> exactly. I, 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 you know. Ooh, that'd be him be going to first. I mean, I've got a book like, over here. I mean, Robert Lincoln. I don't know. He, he believed he was cursed. So yeah, right. I mean, that kind of goes along with the whole right all crime phrase because right because yeah, he so. was he was witness for three presidential execution or executions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking straight tonight. Oh man. The first three presidential assassinations he was around. Yeah, so there we go. Um and, I'm on the list. <laughs> right. And there's this very famous picture taken when they dedicated the um the Lincoln Memorial in nineteen twenty-four. I want to say. He's standing there with uh William Howard Taft and whoever was president at the time. I want to say Harding. Or as I've kind of nicknamed him hard on, but that's something completely different. Yeah. Hey, Warren G, the regulator. Warren G was using the White House as his own personal love shack. Uh, yeah, it does. I thought it was the hundredth. It's a hundredth anniversary this year. Oh, was the memorial. Okay, yeah. twenty-two. But there's this famous picture of Robert Todd standing there with uh William Howard Taft, who I think was on the Supreme Court at the time. Uh-huh. And I want to say Warren G, the uh, the love maker, and they're walking distance to each other at Arlington, pretty much. I, well, I mean, I, it's technically walking distance. I I still need to see Robert Todd's walk. grave. Yeah, do you love that picture I sent you? I'm yeah. like, ah, I'm here and you're not. <laughs> but um, Robert Todd's got this really like worried look on his face at the dedication uh-huh. ceremony because he believed that. Someone was going to assassinate the president with him standing there. I can't connect this to Brendan <laughs> easily. Like that's all my brain. Like we're going to do a six. I know, six, right? Six, six <laughs> yeah, like, degrees of a Brendan Fraser with um, yeah, the Lincoln and bedazzled. There we go. Done. You're welcome. The end. <laughs> that's the love of them in the Mummy movies. Uh, yeah. So anyway, yes, like. So, uh, <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, Lindbergh. For, for privacy's sake, Lindbergh had bought this house out in New Jersey. It wasn't far from his in-laws. And the only people at the house that night was Charles and his wife and the maid, nanny, whatever. Because when you're Charles Lindbergh, you don't, you know, you don't take care of your kid. You have a nanny do it. And living too, I guess. What I think she was, she was. I think she. I think she had her own quarters there. Okay. Yeah. I honestly don't know as much of this as 
I the book I read Cemetery. I've got two books on the subject. Um, I read Cemetery John, which I'm gonna you know once we get through uh-huh. the story, I'll kind of say what the author of the book believed. And then the other one is called uh, Suspect Number One because they believed the the there was a judge who wrote Suspect Number One. She believed that um or he I don't know their honor. The judge believed that Lindbergh was the true mastermind of the kidnapping because the the child had a a birth defect or something. And it was like, but that's not even confirmed, right? That part. No, no, but it's just, well, the child was like in some way imperfect and. Oh yeah. And he is Mr. Nazi. Yeah. I can see that actually. Right. Lindbergh did, did like the Nazis. Yeah, if he didn't have like that connection, I'd be less likely to believe that because right, like, why that makes sense. But now with the connection to the Nazis and all that, right? But I don't, I don't because, see Lindbergh being behind the kidnapping of his own child. Yeah, well, I mean, like I can't say like, oh yeah, definitely, but like there's enough, you know. I would say so much. Nothing could go. Eh. I mean, yeah. it's the level of. Right, Sandy Hook hoax. I'm putting up quotes here, so people. Right, but yeah, like there's just a little bit of enough doubt that, and back then too, you could get yeah, right. But hundred years ago, almost. You're right. Um, On March first, nineteen thirty-two, at approximately ten p.m., the Lindbergh's nurse Betty Gow found that twenty-month-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr wasn't with his mother Anne Merrill Lindbergh, who had just come out of the bathtub. Ooh, that sounds fun. Gal then alerted Charles Lindbergh, who immediately went to the child's room, where he found a ransom note containing bad handwriting and grammar in an envelope on the windowsill. He grabbed a gun, went around the house and the grounds with the family butler, Ollie Watley. They found impressions in the ground under the window of the baby's room, pieces of a wooden ladder, and a baby's blanket. Now, Watley telephoned the Hopewell Police Department while Lindbergh contacted his attorney and friend, Henry Breckenridge, which makes me wonder if he was related to the uh, Breckenridges of uh, Kentucky, and the New Jersey State Police. After midnight, a fingerprint expert examined the ransom note and ladder, uh, they found no usable footprints or fingerprints. Leading experts to conclude that the kidnapper or kidnappers wore gloves and had some type of cloth on the soles of their shoes. Would you have tied that on? It's kind of like wrapped it with, well, they had rubber bands back then, right? Or something? Or I, guess I, I believe so, but I mean, it's a possibility. Yeah, the rope, they just, yeah, tied it with the rope and yeah, you know, we do with now with the right no like, like the uh, the covers that people put on their boots for like hazmat or um exactly yeah painting uh-huh. painting yeah no adult fingerprints were found in the baby's room, including in areas witnesses admitted to touching, such as the window. But the baby's fingerprints were all over the place. The brief handwritten ransom note had many spelling and grammar irregularities. Dear sir, have $50,000 ready, 
25,020 bills, 1510s and 10,005s after 2 to 4 days we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making any any ding public or for notify the police the child is in gut care. It's supposed to be good care. Which indication of all letters and signatures and three holes. The the sign the the signature on the letter was like three circles. Oh but yeah. In, but in in reading the letter, I'm I'm seeing some uh, German spelling in it because when I read the note in the book, it was if you sounded out, it would sound like how a German would speak the the language. Yeah. At the bottom of the note were two interconnected blue circles surrounding a red circle with a hole punched through the red circle and two more holes to the left and right. On further examination of the ransom note by professionals, they found that it was all written by the same person. They determined that due to the odd English, the writer must have been foreign and had spent some but little time in America. The FBI then found a sketch artist to make a portrait of the man that they believed to be the kidnapper. Another attempt on identifying the kidnapper was looking at the ladder that was used in the crime to abduct the child. Police realized that the ladder was not built correctly, but was built by someone who knew how to construct with wood and had prior experience in building. The ladder was examined for fingerprints, but none were found. Even slivers of the ladder had been examined, with the police believing that the examination of this evidence would lead to the kidnapper. They had a professional see how many different types of wood were used. Pattern, ooh, excuse me, pattern made by the nail holes and if it was made indoors or outdoors. This would later be a key element in the trial of the man who was accused of kidnapping the Lindbergh baby. By March 2nd, 1932, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover who got in contact. sensible shoes. Yeah, oh, yeah got in contact with the Trenton, New Jersey Police Department. He told the New Jersey police that they could contact the FBI for any resources and would provide any assistance if needed. The FBI did not have federal jurisdiction until on May 13, 1932. The president declared that the FBI was at the disposal of the New Jersey Police Department and that the FBI should coordinate and conduct the investigation. The New Jersey State Police offer a $25,000 reward for anyone who could provide information pertaining to the case. So, you know, J. Edgar probably showed up wearing sensible shoes, you know, probably had his makeup and nails du- done up, hair in a bouffant. Actually, there is a book on J. Edgar I want to pick up. I might do it next week or this week. I haven't figured it out yet. It's a new biography on J. Edgar that just came out. Oh, haven't heard of that one yet. Uh, I just seen it at Barnes & Noble. Next time I'm there, I'll stamp a picture and send it to you. On March 4th, 1932, a man by the name of Gaston B. Means had a discussion with Evelyn Walsh McLean and told her that he would be of great importance in retrieving the Lindbergh baby. Means told McLean that he would find these kidnappers because he was approached Weeks before the abduction about participating in a big kidnapping. And he claimed that his friend was the kidnapper of the Lindenberg child. You don't say shit like that out loud. 
Yeah, when this McLean, she was the um, owner of the Hope Diamond. Ah, yes. And also, she was the ex-mother-in-law of the woman who would become, sorry, you know, this is me, like, you had to deal with this. Right. Of the woman, Gloria Stewart, who was married uh, to her son, who then she they got divorced and married my man Jimmy. Wow. And, so, you see- and so technically, I also, I met this woman, the granddaughter of Evelyn McLean, too, so. I mean, you don't sit there and just broadcast this out in the public because you never know who's listening. Yeah. Well, that's what I said. Everything is connected. I'm like, oh, God, I sound like a conspiracy person. I mean, not in like a weird way, but. Well, yeah. no, you don't like, have, the, you know, you don't have the, the cork board with the, the yarn connecting everything. and you know of. <laughs> but yeah, true. it's, you know, it's kind of, it's just, it's kind of cool, you know. So, so the following day. Means told McLean that he had made contact with the person who had the child. He then convinced Mrs. McLean to hand him $100,000 to obtain the child because the ransom money had doubled. McLean obliged because, well, she believed the child, she believed that Means really knew where the child was. Now, she waited for the child's return every day until she finally asked Means for her money back. (laughs) <laughs> okay, listen here. I gave you a hundred grand to get this kid back. Um, it's been a week. Give me my money. He refused. The hope time it does not by itself. So, oh hell no! It's, and, and folks, if you ever go to DC, go to the uh, Smithsonian Natural History Museum where the Hope Diamond is on display. Un, I mean, it, it's in an impressive case with two armed security guards in the room. And rotate so you don't, everybody right. gets a view of it, which I, is a good idea. I love that idea. I love yeah. that it rotates, but I'm also, I also love the fact that there's two armed guards in the room. Yeah. Just <laughs> the, the, when I was there last summer with the, with uh, Alex and his girlfriend, Susie, the one guy looked like he looked like he was about approaching retirement age. And and his hand was like comfortably rusting near the gun. Oh God! So he's like, <laughs> he was waiting for some shit to go down. Yeah, it was just like, I'm like two days to retirement. I have something happen. Please let something happen. I'm two <laughs> days away from retirement. My wife is a my wife is on my back every day. She's riding me like a bad wedgie. I got a kid in rehab, and I got another one who I don't know where the hell she's. Oh, the grandkid in rehab, so. Well, he could have kids or grandkids. I don't know, but he was just waiting. He was waiting. Then the other guy blended into the into the darkened corner so well, I didn't see him there. Well. He refused to return the money, and she reported him to the police, and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison on embezzlement charges. <laughs> Serves him right. Now, Violent Sharp, who was suspected as a conspirator, died by suicide on June 10th before she was scheduled to be questioned for the fourth time. Her involvement was later ruled out due to her having an alibi for the night of March 1st. In 1939, 
Roosevelt announced that the Federal Bureau of Investigation will take 43. Uh, 30, what did I say? 34? 30 to 39. Even with my the ink dying, I can see it says 33. In 33, FDR announced that the Federal Bureau of Investigation will take full jurisdiction over the case in October. Of thir- in October. Word of the kidnapping quickly spread. Hundreds of people converged on the estate, destroying any footprint evidence. Along with the police, well-connected and well-intentioned people arrived at the estate. Military colonels offered their aid, although only one had law enforcement experience. Now, this is going to name sound familiar to some of you out there. Herbert Norman Schwarzkopf, the father of that Norman Schwarzkopf. Yep. And this one is buried at the... um... Oh my West Point. God. Yeah. What well, the dad or the son? Well, actually, they both are now. But when I was when I oh, saw them, so they're both at up at West Point. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, Storm and Norman here was the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police. The other colonels were Henry Skillman Breckenridge, a Wall Street lawyer, and William J. Donovan, hero of the First World War, who would later head the Office of Strategic Services which in World War II was the OSS, which later became the CIA. Lindbergh and these men speculated that the kidnapping was perpetrated by organized crime figures because we're in Jersey, we're close to New York. Why the hell not? They thought that the letter was written by someone who spoke German as his native language. Well, that's a dead giveaway there, folks. At this time, Charles used his influence to control the direction of the investigation. He contacted Mickey Rosner, a Broadway hanger-on rumored to know mobsters. Rosner turned to two speakeasy owners, Salvatore Salvi Spitali and Irving Bitts, for aid. Lindbergh quickly endorsed the duo and appointed them his intermediaries to deal with the mob. Several organized crime figures, notably Al Capone... Willie Moretti, Joe Adonis, and Abner's Willman spoke from prison, offering to help return the baby in exchange for money or for legal favors. Yeah, uh, I forget how much Capone was going to throw in, but I believe at the time he did this, he was in an eastern state. Represent over here. (laughs) I I do would like to see eastern state next time I'm in Philly. Uh, It's been, I think, probably like 20 years. Almost since I've been there. Of course, I used to live close to it and all, but yeah. You know. Times right. fell hard and I had to graduate from college. So, <laughs> but specifically, Capone offered assistance in return for being released from prison under the pretense that his assistance would be more effective. <laughs> yeah. Nice try. This was quickly tonight by authorities. Hey. You gotta give it to Al. He tried. Yeah, true. Yeah. The morning after the kidnapping, authorities notified President Herbert Hoover of the crime. At that time, kidnapping was classified as a state crime, and the case did not seem to have any grounds for federal involvement. Attorney General William D. Mitchell met with Hoover and announced that the whole machinery of the Department of Justice would be set in motion to cooperate with the New Jersey authorities. Hoover was probably working on a new vacuum cleaner at the time in the Oval Office. He, he was trying to per, he was trying to uh, invent the um. Oh well, yeah, whole, in case the, the whole you know 
presidency thing. Right. You know, in, you know if, in case he didn't get a second term, you know, he, he's got to have a backup <laughs> yeah. job. Yeah. Smart thinking. You know, he, he was competing with the uh, predecessors, the Dirt Devil. He wanted to invent the cyclone technology that uh, he was also trying to clean up, probably clean up some of Warren G's uh, noticeable stains in the White House. The Bureau of Investigation, later the FBI, was authorized to investigate the case, while the United States Coast Guard, the U.S. Customs Service, the U.S. Immigration Service, and the Washington, D.C. Police were told their services might be required. New Jersey officials announced a $25,000 reward for the safe return of Little Lindy. The Lindbergh family offered an additional $50,000 reward of their own. At this time, the total reward of $75,000 approximately equivalent to $1,186,000 in 2020, was a tremendous sum of money. Again, duh. Because the nation was in the midst of the Great Depression. Basically, any time that was like a million hundred eighty-six, even like... Well, and... Now it would be like... Oh, right, but this was, um, if I remember right, the third... Did did this period here in the 30s, we're looking in like um, future down the road, we're going to get like Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde and and kidnapping. Kidnapping was a was a crime. Yeah, well, I'm talking about the amount of the money, though. But of course, it was still the equivalent, but that would still be able to get you more money. Oh, yeah. A million back then, obviously. Right. Would get um, worth than a million would today. Yeah, you know, they they really that, you would get um you would get certain criminals that would target like rich people. Uh huh. But no, they, I mean for if something that reward amount though. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. This one's like way off. But well, right. I mean, I'm. You're adding your parts. I'm adding. Yeah, your parts. you know, this is that's what for folks. I think <laughs> that's why we work well together. Yeah. So, on March 6, a new ransom letter arrived by mail at the Lindbergh home. The letter was postmarked March 4th in Brooklyn, and it carried the perforated red and blue marks. The ransom had been raised to $70,000. A third ransom they postmarked from Brooklyn, and also including the stupid marks, arrived in Breckenridge's mail. The note told the Lindberghs that John Condon should be the intermediary between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers, and requested notification in a newspaper that the third note had been received. Instructions specified the size of the box the money should come in and warned the family not to contact the police. Okay, you know that box, you, you know that bakery down there on the corner of 42nd and Harlem? The one that makes, yeah, the one that makes the good cannolis? Yeah, that's the type of box you should put the money in. What, and throw a couple cannolis in too, because we're hungry. Now I want a cannoli. Thanks. Yeah, well, you get anything true. like that around here too? So yeah, double thank you. <laughs> now during this time, as you're probably wondering who in the hell John F. Condon is, he was a well-known Bronx personality and a retired school teacher. Now he offered a thousand dollars if the kidnapper would turn the child over to a Catholic priest. That's something. No, no, not a Catholic priest. No, the, the, the poor kid. No. Give him to a Baptist priest. And, you know, he's going to get fed good. There's no Baptist priest. Minister. 
pastor, whatever, whatever they're called. Yeah. All, pastor. I, all I know is the Baptists love to have potlucks. And yeah, there's, true. Plenty of, there, there's plenty of food around, so the kids can be fed. True. true. Yeah. So this is your, you know, the what religious education section of the right. Well, uh, the reason why I know that is because Amanda was a Baptist and she um she told me like every time they had like a discussion on something there was a potluck mm-hmm. involved. She's like, that's why you see most Baptists are like 350 pounds. <laughs> what what type of Baptist? You know, or um I I've been by the church in her hometown of Carrollton, mm-hmm. but I don't think they were Southern Baptist. Not okay, yeah, probably American, maybe. <laughs> You'll have to ask her now. <laughs> I don't. I haven't talked to her in well, obviously, a while. Yeah. yeah. So Condon received a letter reportedly written by the kidnappers. It authorized him to be their intermediary with Lindbergh. Lindbergh accepted the letter as the real deal. Now, following the kidnappers' latest instructions, Condon placed a classified ad in the New York American reading, Money is Ready, Jopsy. Condon then waited for further instructions from the culprits. A meeting between Jopsy and a representative of the group that claimed to be the kidnappers was eventually scheduled for late one evening at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. According to Condon, The man sounded foreign, but stayed in the shadows during the conversation, and he was thus unable to get a close look at his face. The man said his name was John, and he related his story. He was a a Scandinavian sailor, part of a gang of three men and two women. The baby was being held on a boat, unharmed, but would be returned only for ransom. When Condon expressed doubt that John actually had the baby, he promised some proof. The kidnapper would soon return the baby's sleeping suit. The stranger asked Condon, Would I burn if the package were dead? When questioned further, he assured Condon that the baby was alive. Now, see, right there, if he said, if if someone was to say, Hey, um, you know, I kidnapped this kid, um, you think I'm going to get the electric chair if the kid's dead? That would kind of light something in my head that maybe the kid's dead. That's just me. Yeah. Now, on March 16th, Condon received a toddler sleeping suit by mail and a seventh ransom note. After Lindbergh identified the pajamas, Condon placed a new ad in the home news. Money is ready. No cops, no secret service. I come alone like last time. On April 1st, he received a letter saying it was time for the ransom to be delivered. The ransom was packaged in a wooden box that was custom made in the hope that it could later be identified. Smart move. Honestly, that that is a smart move. The ransom money included a number of gold certificates. Since gold certificates were about to be withdrawn from circulation, it was hoped greater attention would be drawn to anyone spending them. Another smart move. The bills were not marked, but their serial numbers were recorded. Some sources credit this idea to Frank J. Wilson, others to Elmer Lincoln Iray. 
On April 2nd, Condon was given a note by an intermediary, an unknown cab driver. <laughs> well, this was New York in the 30s, so um, I doubt he was a, of a, a foreign national. Oh, yes, sir. I'd be taking you to where you want to go. Condon <laughs> met John and told him that they had been able to raise only 50 grand. Well, he accepted the money and gave Condon a note saying that the child was in the care of two innocent women. <laughs> this is bargain basement kidnapping here. Yeah, he's literally handed this like kid over and been like, "Don't ask any questions. Just take care of the kid." You know, this is something. You know, they want what? They're not what, innocent what? then, <laughs> right? What are we up to? Like seventy-five grand? They were like, yeah, twenty-five grand short. He's like, yeah, fuck it, I'll take it. Uh-huh. On May 12th, delivery truck driver Orville Wilson and his assistant, William Allen, pulled to the side of a road about 4.5 miles or 7.2 kilometers south of the Lindbergh home near the hamlet of Mount Rose in neighboring Hopewell Township. When Allen went into a grove of trees to urinate, he discovered the body of a toddler. The skull was barely fractured and the body decomposed with evidence of scavenging by animals. There were indications of an attempt at a hasty burial. Gao identified the baby as the missing infant from the overlapping toes of the right foot and a shirt that she had made. It appeared the child had been killed by a blow to the head. Lindbergh insisted on cremation. In June 1932, officials began to suspect that the crime had been perpetrated by someone the Lindberghs knew. Suspicion fell upon Violet Sharp, a British household servant at the Murrow home who had given contradictory information regarding her whereabouts on the night of the kidnapping. It was reported that she appeared nervous and suspicious when questioned. She died by suicide on June 10th, 1932 by ingesting a silver polish that contains cyanide just before being questioned for the fourth time. Her alibi was, sorry, She's in there, she's going, okay, I'm going to polish the silver, glug, glug, glug. It had a bitter aftertaste. I would say, actually, that stuff does, I have, like, silver jewelry cleaner. I open up, and it's, like, I mean, just, I have to, like, stand away from it. I remember in boot camp, I got in trouble for something. I think I failed an inspection or something. Uh-huh. And I had to go down to the quarter deck and polish the brass. So they gave me brasso. Ooh, yeah, that's ooh. Uh-huh. Oh man, the, the the fumes off of brasso, but I'll tell you what, man, that quarter deck was shining. And, but yeah, I don't know. This is like because I've used brass, I've used like the silver polish, but this is like silver liquid stuff. The jewelry that I mean, that just as a oh, what they have in it. No, this stuff that so, um, yeah, I can't imagine drinking it. Well, no, I mean, this stuff could have been like uh, early Tarnex, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, the stuff they used to sell on uh, commercials in the back in the 80s. Tarnex, get this, <laughs> watch this spoon, he dips it in, and it comes out clean. Uh-huh. Okay, where's oh June 10th, 1932, by ingesting a silver polish that contains cyanide because you know back in the day it just 
Sign that I would seem to be in everything. What was in? in what? I know, right? Yeah, just be- yeah, just before being questioned for the fourth time, her alibi was later confirmed, and police were criticized for heavy-handedness. Really? The police were heavy-handed? No, right? No, so that hasn't God. changed. <laughs> Condon was also questioned by police, and his home searched, but nothing suggestive was found. Charles Lindbergh stood by Condon during this time. After the discovery of the body, Condon remained unofficially involved in the case. To the public, he had become a suspect and in some circles was vilified. For the next two years, he visited police departments and pledged to find Cemetery John. Condon's actions regarding the case was increasingly flamboyant. Hi! <laughs> I was thinking like <laughs> the flappers. You're right. Uh, late now. On one occasion, while riding a city bus, Condon claimed that he saw a suspect on the street and announcing his secret identity, I'm Batman, ordered the bus to stop. The bus start- all over. I'm Batman. <laughs> yeah, I did it better. The startled <laughs> driver complied and Condon darted from the bus, although his target eluded him. Condon's actions were also criticized as exploitive when he agreed to appear in a vaudeville act regarding the kidnapping. Yeah, that's pretty... If Liberty Magazine... Yeah, like, Liberty Magazine published a serialized account of Condon's involvement in the Lindbergh kidnapping under the title, Jaffsy Tells All. I wonder if the bus driver's name was Ralph Cramden. A couple times later. You're right. And investigators who were working on the case were soon at a standstill. <coughs> Excuse me. There were no developments and little evidence of any sort. So police turned their attention to tracking the ransom payments. A pamphlet was prepared with the serial numbers on the ransom bills and 250,000 copies were distributed to businesses, mainly in New York City. A few of the ransom bills appeared in scattered locations, some as far away as Chicago and Minneapolis, but those spending the bills were never found. Well, I'm, I mean, certainly questions arise on how they got so far here into the Midwest. Yeah. I mean, could it have been, um, it, and, you know, could it be like um, the, the kidnappers who weren't caught moving out east uh-huh. or out west? Now, by a presidential order, all gold certificates were to be exchanged for other bills by May 1st, 1933. A few days before the deadline, a man brought $2,980 to a Manhattan bank for exchange. It was later realized that the bills were from the ransom. He had given his name as J.J. Faulkner of 537 West 149th Street. Well, the thing is, is no one named Faulkner lived at that address. And Jane Faulkner, who had lived there 20 years earlier, denied involvement. Well, there was an idea. You know, bank tellers need to be more alert of this shit, you know? Now, during a 30-month period, a number of ransom bills were spent throughout New York City. Detectives realized that many of the bills were being spent along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan, including the German-Austrian neighborhood of Yorkville. On September 18, 1934, a Manhattan bank teller noticed a gold certificate from the ransom. 
a New York license plate number, 4U1341 New York, penciled in the bill's margin, allowed it to be traced to a nearby gas station. The station manager had written down the license plate number because this customer was acting suspicious and was possibly a counterfeiter. The license plate belonged to a sedan owned by Richard Hopman of 1279 East 222nd Street in the Bronx. He was an immigrant with a criminal record in Germany. Wonder why he came to America. When he was arrested, he was carrying a single $20 gold certificate and over 14 grand of the ransom money was found in his garage. Once again, don't hide money in your garage. He was arrested and interrogated and beaten at least once throughout the following day and night. Only once? You know, on an, ep- an older episode of Law & Order SVU, Stabler usually tuned him up two or three times within an hour. You know, you get the big, thick phone book and, you, you know, yeah, I've watched too many police dramas. Haputman stated that the money and other items had been left with him by his friend and former business partner, Isidore Fish. Oh, I say the name Fish and I think of um, Abe Vigoda's character on Barney Miller. Fish had died on March 29, 1934, shortly after returning to Germany. Hauptmann stated that he learned only of Fish's death that the shoebox that was left with him contained a considerable sum of money. He kept the money because he claimed that it was owed to him for a business deal that he and Fish had made. I wonder what the business deal was. Hauptmann consistently denied any connection to the crime or knowledge that the money in his house was from the ransom. When the police searched Hauptmann's home, they found a considerable amount of additional evidence that linked him to the crime. One item was a notebook that contained a sketch of the construction of a ladder similar to that which was found at the Lindbergh home in March 1932. John Condon's telephone number, along with his address, were discovered written on a closet wall in the house. A key piece of evidence, a section of wood, was discovered in the attic of the home. After being examined by an expert, it was determined to be an exact match to the wood used in the construction of the ladder found at the scene of the crime. How do you become an expert on wood? I mean, do you go to school and, you know, right. How do you, I mean, do you just go to school and you're like, you know what, I want to know what different types of wood look like. I guess like um, carpenters and all too, they need to. Well, right. I mean, carpenters, I mean, I could always ask my brother next time he's over, but I doubt my brother brother knows that much. Uh Poplet was indicted in the Bronx on September 24, 1934, for extorting the $50,000 ransom from Charles Lindbergh. Two weeks later, on October 8th, Hoffman was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Two days later, he was surrendered to the New Jersey authorities by New York Governor Herbert H. Lehman to face charges directly related to the kidnapping and murder of the child. Hoffman was moved to the Hunterdon County Jail in Flemington, New Jersey on October 19th. Lindbergh testified, <coughs> excuse me, Hoffman was charged with capital murder. The trial was held at the Hunterdon County Courthouse in Flemington, New Jersey, and was soon dubbed the trial of the century. The first one that I'm pretty sure was dubbed that. 
in the 20th oh, no, century. Um, no, the, oh, Osaka well, Vanzetti. That was, that was earlier, right? I, I think Globe. so. But I mean, you know, trials like this do get, you know, the trial of the century label. Well, yeah. I mean, and they're all pretty, pretty much true anyway. Actually. Right. But, okay. Reporters swarmed the town and every hotel room was booked. Judge Thomas Whitaker Trenchard presided over the trial. In exchange for a race to publish Hoffman's story in their newspaper, Edward J. Riley was hired by the New York Daily Mirror to serve as Hoffman's attorney. David T. Willens, Attorney General of New Jersey, led the prosecution. I, I just don't know where all these people come from. I mean, we just we have just a quiet little town here, and you know, my, my wife just she likes to cook the muffins and all of a sudden, we got all these people in the in the restaurant just eating up our muffins. I'm, I'm, oh, it's a big windfall for us. That is absolutely the worst New Jersey accent I've ever heard. I'm not trying for New Jersey. I'm just doing. I don't know what you're trying for. Like anything. I, I will not try a Jersey accent because. Uh, oh, thank God. <laughs> well, no, because I'm. It's going to sound like a bad meat, a bad meathead impression. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> On behalf of everybody's ears, I thank you. Right, but I mean, you know, I I was just doing an old man, you know. It was, it was, I was. It sounded in my head. It sounded like uh, Fred Gwynn in uh, Pet Cemetery, but it it wasn't even close. Not even close. (laughs) And I can't pull a New England one off either because you know us Midwesterners screw up accents. Evidence against Hot Putman included 20 grand of the ransom money found in his garage and testimony alleging that his handwriting and spelling were similar to those of the ransom notes. Eight handwriting experts, including Albert S. Osborne, pointed out similarities between the ransom notes and Hotman's writing specimens. The defense called an expert to rebuke this evidence, while two others declined to testify. <laughs> Can't blame them at all. The latter two demanded 500 bucks before looking at the notes and were dismissed by Lloyd Fisher, a member of Hot Putman's legal team. Well, he declined. Other experts retained by the defense were never called to testify because they're probably sitting back there going, oh, hell no. We're not getting involved in this mess. On the basis of the work of Arthur Kohler at the Forest Products Laboratory, the state introduced photographs demonstrating that part of the wood from the ladder matched a plank from the floor of his attic. The type of wood, the direction of tree growth, the milling pattern, the inside and outside surface of the wood, and the grain on both sides were identical, and four oddly placed nail holes lined up with nail holes in joists in Hopputman's attic. Condon addressed Condon's address and telephone number were written in pencil on a closet door in his home, and he told the police that he had written Condon's address. I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and kept a little bit record of it, and maybe I was just on the closet and was reading the paper and put it, put it down the address. I can't give you any explanation about the telephone number. 
I, I've never heard of a person reading their newspaper in the closet. Yeah, no. Uh, unless you're Harry Potter. Yeah, I was just about, I was thinking, that's about. And you're waiting for your letter from Hogwarts to show up. And also, if he's like, why did he write, if he was reading on the paper, why did he just write it on the paper? Then it's Right. Yeah. Because because if you write it on the newspaper, then when you're done with the paper, you toss the paper out, you get, you know. Yeah. Get rid of evidence. Mm Mm-hmm. A sketch that Willens suggested represented a letter was found in one of his notebooks. Ottman said that this picture and other sketches therein were the work of a child. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I when I was a kid, I, I probably drew a better letter than what was actually built. I probably wouldn't have, but also right. Well, you know, ladders. Yeah, you used to draw cubes. Right, but see what you do is you use the line paper. You use the left margin for one line. Uh You space it out a little bit, and then you use the connecting lines to make your rungs. You know, sounds fun. Yeah, well, when you're bored in class. Despite not having an obvious source of earned income. Hopman had bought a $400 radio, which is equivalent to $8,100 in today's money, and sent his wife on a trip to Germany. He had to get rid of her. Yeah, I needed to take a minute for that. Yeah. Hopman was identified as the man (laughs) to whom the ransom money was delivered. Other witnesses testified that it was Hopman who had spent some of the Lindbergh gold certificates that he had been seen in the area of the estate in East Amwell, New Jersey, near Hopewell, on the day of the kidnapping, and that he had been absent from work on the day of the ransom payment and had quit his job two days later. Hoffman never saw another job afterward, yet continued to live comfortably. When the prosecution rested its case, the defense opened with a lengthy examination of Hoffman. In his testimony, Hoffman denied being guilty, insisting that the box of gold certificates had been left in his garage by a friend, Isidore Fish, who had returned to Germany in December 1933 and died there in March 1934. Hoffman said that he had one day found a shoebox left behind by Fish, which Hoffman had stored on the top shelf of his kitchen broom closet, later discovering the money, which he later found to be almost $40,000, approximately equivalent to $617,000 in 2020. Hoffman said that because Fish had owed him about $7,500 in business funds, Hoffman had kept the money for himself and had lived on it since January 1934. The defense called Hoffman's wife, Anna, to corroborate the Fish story, or the Fishy story. (laughs) I made it funny. On cross-examination, she admitted that while she hung her apron every day on a hook higher than the top shelf, she could not remember seeing any shoebox there. Later, rebuttal witnesses testified that Fish could not have been at the scene of the crime and that he had no money for medical treatments when he died of tuberculosis. Fish's landlady testified that he could barely afford a $3.50 weekly rent of his room. In his closing summation, Riley argued that the evidence against Hopman was entirely circumstantial because no reliable witnesses had placed Hoffman at the scene of the crime 
nor were his fingerprints found on the ladder, on the ransom notes, or anywhere in the nursery. It's because they wore gloves. <laughs> Idiots. Hopman was convicted and immediately sentenced to death. His attorneys appealed to the New, York, New Jersey Court of Errors and Appeals, which at the time was the state's highest court. The appeal was argued on June 29, 1935. New Jersey Governor Harold G. Hoffman secretly visited Hopman in his cell on the evening of October 16th, accompanied by a stenographer who spoke German fluently. Hoffman urged members of the Court of Errors and Appeals to visit Hopman. In late January 1936, while declaring that he held no position on the guilt or innocence of Hopman, Hoffman cited evidence that the crime was not a one-person job and directed Storm and Norman to continue a thorough and impartial investigation in an effort to bring all parties involved to justice. It became known among the press that on March 27, Hoffman was considering a reprieve of Hoffman, Hoffman's death sentence and was seeking opinions about whether the governor had the right to issue a second reprieve. On March 30, 1936, Hopman's second and final appeal asking for clemency from the New Jersey Board of Pardons was denied. Hoffman later announced that, his, that this decision would be the final legal action in the case and that he would not grant another reprieve. Nonetheless, there was a post, postponement when Mercer County Grand Jury investigating the confession and arrest of Trenton attorney Paul Wendell, requested a delay from Warden Mark Kimberling. This, the final stay, ended when the Mercer County prosecutor informed Kimberling that the grand jury had adjourned after voting to end its investigation without charging Wendell. Hopman turned down a large offer from a Hearst newspaper for a confession and refused a last-minute offer to commute his sentence from the death penalty to life without parole in exchange for a confession. He was strapped into Old Sparky on April 3rd, 1936 and fried like a piece of bacon. <laughs> After his death, some reporters and independent investigators came up with numerous questions about the way in which the investigation had been run and the fairness of the trial, including witness tampering and planted evidence. Twice in the 1980s, Anna Hopman sued the state of New Jersey for the unjust execution of her husband. The suits were dismissed due to prosecutorial immunity and because the statute of limitations had run out. She continued fighting to clear his name until her death at the age of 95 in 1994. I actually think I remember when she died. I might. Now, I know the cemetery... Because closer, closer, you know. Right. Uh, the cemetery, John, that they're talking about is uh, based on... There's a, a book that I read called Cemetery, John, where this uh, kid... Okay. I'm going to see if I can pull up a little bit of information on it because it was a good book. Um, the author of the book is called Robert Zorn. And he believed that the, the cemetery, John, that Condon uh, spoke with 
was actually one of his neighbors. Yeah. Um, yeah, like they were both cremated. All right. Uh, yeah. The 1932 Lindbergh kidnapping was orchestrated by a Bronx deli clerk who got away with the crime scot-free. Zorn's research includes new forensic evidence, personal and historical documents, and interviews laying the foundation for a thrilling true crime tale that offers a resounding answer to the question of who was really responsible for, for the kidnapping. Now, I, I can't quite remember the clerk's name. But uh, Zorn, Zorn said that um, his father knew the, uh, knew the deli clerk. He was a neighbor in the building that they lived in. And he, on, he said he remembered one day they were at Coney Island. And the neighbor met with two other, two other German fellows and they started speaking their native language. And they, it was like they were talking about a, um, a special project that was coming up. So looking through everything, he kind of guesses that or lays the evidence that his his father's neighbor was Cemetery Jean, and he was one because sometime after the kidnapping, uh, this guy disappeared to Germany for a while. And you understand we're getting close to World War II here, so you know, hiding down in Germany wasn't a crime unless you decide to wear a red armband while you're doing it. Yeah. But that is the, the Lindbergh kidnapping case. Like I said, you know, there, there's another book, uh, Suspect Number One, that a judge wrote where she suggests, or he, she, that the judge suggests that um, um, Lindbergh was behind it because, as we mentioned, the kid had um, like some toes. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So, you know, toes on top of each other, and he couldn't live with that imperfection and orchestrated all this to get rid of the kid. Now, one thing that they mentioned, and I forgot to put in, was they when they on the night of the kidnapping, the family heard a thud outside the house, which they thought was a cat. I can see that, you know, you hear a noise, oh, it's just a cat outside. Well, as we said, you know, the baby was found with his head kind of crushed in. So what they think happened was as they were coming down the ladder, the kid wiggled, fell out of his arms and hit the ground, which is where he died. Uh-huh. And All Right, and they're thinking, oh, well, that's just a cat outside on the ground. Well, no, it was your son being kidnapped, and he fell and died. Yeah. But I could see how um, a mistake like that could be made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, thuds all, like... Well, right, and... Not the same. Right, and I mean... And not expecting it, not near, not not seeing it happen. So there's, be like, well... Well, and another thing was that the the ladder wasn't set Mm -hmm. under the window, it was set next to the window. 
Yeah, so you had kind of had to swing over too. Right. Yeah. So obviously these guys were amateurs pulling this off. Uh-huh. Obviously, just with that move. Right. I mean, anyone who's well, I'm not gonna recount my past, but anyone who's ever tried to do some hey, we're, arts, we're gonna do that one. <laughs> Well, are we going to do one or just... we're we're gonna do it i mean okay. next, next week is uh is going into christmas so we're gonna do a a, a christmas themed case i i think i know mm-hmm. who i think i know who i who, i think i know who i'm gonna pull up mm-hmm. and then we could probably kick off new, uh go into new year's with the uh with the old man mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a great way to start. Just, yeah, it's a good way to start you know, the new year. It's worse than 2020, right? With like put a damper on 23 yeah. already. Right. And and you know, there's there's just things about him that I just I'll bring up on that one because I still I still think, man, he my father, I'm just gonna give you a little preview here. My, Come to realize that my father's a Trump supporter. Not surprising. Well, no, it wasn't because when when he started with some of the the voter fraud stuff, I was like, mm-hmm. oh my, yeah, I was like, Jesus Christ, you're a Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. Like, were you actually surprised? I mean, I wasn't su- like. It's just it's a disappointing. Like it was a disappointing another surprise. Thing, kind of, yeah. It was like. If you can't, if there was enough shit going wrong against you now, yeah, uh-huh. but when I mean, I watched the 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 January sixth incident on TV as it was unfolding. Oh yeah, and I actually had to look to make sure the the Q shaman was not my father. I was too young anyway. You could tell, like, just... you know, I I can never tell where uh-huh. he's gonna pop. Even but today, yeah, when, but even, like looking at the guy, he could tell it was like, right. But I, I had to make sure, you know, I had to wait till they got a good close up of him. Uh, like, yeah. uh-huh. Okay, so you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, my library, the room that's now my library was my bedroom at the time, uh-huh. and I was watching him like, oh, please don't be him, please don't be him, <laughs> yeah, please, please, please just don't be him. And then when I, it wasn't, I was like, Oh, thank God. Yeah. Because trust me, if, if it was him, I would have made a trip to D.C. and testified against him. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And I would, I would, be, I would be like, a week um, ahead. <laughs> right. Well, I would have been like um, Senate committee. Um, my father is certifiably insane. He's schizophrenic. If he you know, locking him up for the rest of his life. He's in his seventies. He doesn't have that much longer. You're doing us a favor. Mm-hmm. At least we, at least we'll know where he is. Yeah. So, can you throw him in Supermax? Right next to Kaczynski. Let him and Teddy talk for a little bit. You yeah. Know? Right? Teddy will walk out and be like, man, this guy's crazy. That's the only thing I'm afraid of is Kaczynski would sit there and listen to him going, Jesus Christ, they thought I was crazy. Yeah, right. I just did pipe bombs and had a manifesto. This man, whew. Uh-huh. 
I'm pr- I'm pretty sure that if he had gone to Guyana with the rest of Jim Jones's flock, he would probably be the one sitting there going, "I'll tell you it all." He would have been the one live one. Mm-hmm. Cyanide won't kill me. I'm the Lord's messenger. But then, as we all know, Jim Jones didn't believe in a sky god, and you know, yeah, there, there would have been a schism within Jonestown. Or in the fight between the two of them to take over. Oh man. No, because my father probably would have walked out of Jonestown. He'd been out there in the Guyana jungle with the monkeys. Yeah. You know, trying to be some type of Tarzan or <laughs> right. You said me up at Georgia the Jungle. <laughs> I was gonna Yeah, I was thinking Georgia huh? the Jungle, but I was going more like um Oh, okay. I thought you were doing this. Yeah. No, I Tarzan is the first thing I always think of was some guy walking out in the jungle because look, yeah, but like the way you're looking at me, like, hello, take it. Right. <laughs> take um, the joke. I'm literally handing it to you I'm right op- now. I, I've opened the door for you. Yes, I know I'm using the word literally like wrong, but you know. It's just like it it flows nicely. <laughs> he he would have been like that that guy um that had been out there in the jungles. Of uh, the Philippines, he was a he was a World War II Japanese soldier. Got shot down in the Philippines mm-hmm. on one of the islands, yeah, yeah. and survived for years out in the jungle, still thinking that the war was going oh, yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they they found him in the seventies and found his commanding officer who was mm-hmm. still alive. Mm-hmm. Come and go, hey, um, war's been over for about thirty years now. Yeah, you can surrender. Yeah, I guess what you lost too. So we don't get the benefit of being like, "Hey, and we won." Yeah, I was like, "Oh I, man!" Well, it, it, yeah, I'm. I just kept thinking about the Confederates who went down to Brazil and started their own colony. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of a bunch of Confederates after the end of the Civil War went down to Brazil because slavery was still legal there. Well, at least they knew the war was over. Well, they went down there and they formed their own community. Uh-huh. And there are descendants of the Confederates down there. Oh, God. There are... <laughs> yeah, Brazilian Confederates down there in the jungle just living peacefully. I... Yeah, I get a headache when I think about it. I know. I'm literally, I again, I'm like, I just like, I love that word. Like so, like. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up. Um, Facebook, join the group. Let us know how we're doing. Or uh, not, please. All right. <laughs> um, nice. Castbox, Podbeans, uh, Spotify. If you can, if you get Spotify, we're up there. If you're going to look for it, go uh, Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs Two Point. Don't forget the Two Point yeah, because there's the Killers, Cults, and Queens, too, now, which they... I still got to listen to that sometime. Yeah, you know they totally, like, we're going through a list of right. shows, and they're like, um, oh, that sounds good, so it's like, well, that's kind of cool, I guess. No. Right, and for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs, I am Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Good night, Monica.